Uh, we will be continuing our study in 1 John today. Uh, I will pray for us and we will dig in. King Jesus, you are how it is that we are safe. You are the one who has come to save us from ourselves and from our sin and from our love of sin to a life in you, to a life in your freedom, to eternal life, which begins now, to a life lived for, your jo- for enjoying you, uh, for your glory. And so I pray for us now uh, as we look to the deep abiding truths of your gospel that you loved us before we loved you as we look into your word today and see that for your glory and by your grace you have saved us to you to worship you, to serve you, to know you, to enjoy you, to cherish you. And that the deep abiding truth of our cleanliness before You, our righteousness before You, our goodness before You, through the cross of Your Son, Jesus Christ, would light us up for a passion for Your Gospel and for Your truth and for the worship of You uh, that extends vastly beyond this meeting of Your church, but out into the world as we go, as we live proclaiming the good news of Your Gospel wherever we go. That You would light us up as carriers of Your message of your gospel and your truth, that at the core and heart of our life would be our love and enjoyment of you, Jesus, a life empowered by your Holy Spirit, and a life living knowing how loved we are by you, not by anything that we have done, that we cannot earn your love, but it's your love extended to us for your glory and for our joy. Help us, Jesus, to appreciate this more and more every day. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Um, Today, as we dig into chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, And I think as we look at this particular doctrine and this particular beautiful message of 1 John, uh, it's important for us to remember that right now we live in a time and a place where it is at least somewhat controversial to be a Christian based primarily on social uh, issues, and they come up again and again and again. That's even part of the reason we're in First John, to remember what it is to be faithful Christians in the world. But I think it's also important to remember, uh, as we look to this, uh, that one of the things that is central, key, distinctive, and even sometimes offensive is the theological truth of who Jesus is and what his gospel has done. Yes, there are things that we believe in the Bible that seem odd or outdated or any number of other things to people. But you know what seems more odd than anything else is that I cannot earn God's love, but that God himself, Jesus Christ, had to come to save me from my love of sin and my love of self to a life in his freedom, to a life in his gospel and a life in his grace. That every other world system has a system where you get up to God, where you do something to earn God's merit or favor, but that the gospel of Jesus Christ shines as unique and special and different because it's God's movement towards us to save us by His grace and mercy. And then when you actually push on some of these truths, these are actually offensive things to say to people. 
You can't earn God's love. You can't do something to make God like you more. You need Jesus. I don't know if you know that, but it is offensive. And this, today, as we look at uh, 1 John chapter 2, uh, is one of the most central, basic, offensive, and cherished doctrines of our faith, the cross of Jesus Christ, and what he did on that cross. And as we look at today, we see that Jesus is both the means of our salvation, how we get right with God, but also our model for what a saved life looks like what a life in the hands of God looks like. That Jesus is both our Savior who comes to get us, but also when we look at his life, we look how we ought to live. So here we go. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, now we looked at this verse last week, but it's, it's pertinent to what we're doing today, so we have to look at it again, and honestly, it's worth looking at every Sunday, in my estimation. My little children, by the way, happy Mother's Day. (laughs) By the way, the gospel is good news for us all, and for moms too. For everybody and moms. Moms, I want that to not sound, uh, I want that to lift up moms to where I'm at. Happy Mother's Day, I'll stop there. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you... Now, let's stop right there. My little children. John, uh, this is probably written between 90 and 95 in the first century. Uh, John is a very old man at this point in time. Uh, John is unique and special to us. We need to remember these things. When we look at his letter, when we look at his gospel, when we look at the other two letters, which are unfortunately really missed, second and third John, beautiful, beautiful letters, uh, and John's apocalypse or his revelation in the end of our Bible. Um, John was probably the youngest of Jesus' disciples, uh, and now he's the last one likely at this point in time in 90 AD left. He lived a very long life. Praise the Lord. Uh, This is written likely near the end of his life. Um, Not only that, he had disciples like Polycarp. We're really blessed. God in his sovereign grace and mercy does amazing things. So John lives an extraordinarily long time for a first century guy. Polycarp lives an extraordinary life, I think 86 years for a first century guy. And, and they have disciples like Irenaeus that show us that this is, this is not just um, theological, uh, it's not just a theological construct. This is a letter to an actual church teaching them actual applied theology about who Jesus actually is and how their lives are actually supposed to live from a guy who actually knew Jesus. That's helpful for us. Because I actually know Jesus, and you actually know Jesus, and we actually want to live in the wake of the reality of who Jesus actually is. And he's telling us, and that's beautiful, right? And here his, his soft, and he's got some hard words here in this text. Let's, we're not saying he's not. He's got some strong warnings. He's been around the block. He's seen some things. He's telling the church, just like a parent tells their child, if you do that, that's going to hurt. Please don't do that. Trust me, Right? Moms, right? It's Mother's Day. See, I tied the message in to make it a Mother's Day message. But he says, my children. This is, this is, he's, these people are dear to him. He, he's transferring this message to them because Jesus is dear to him and they are dear to him. My children. And, and whenever you read 1 John, he's going to use this, these kinds of phrases and you'll see him. And when you see those, pay attention. I, I know I beat the drum again and again and again because I actually do want you to read your Bible slowly. Please read your Bible slowly. Read 1 John slowly. And as you read 1 John slowly, pay attention to every time he says, my children, my children, my children, my children. He 
He's starting a new thought, and he wants you to pay attention. My children, my little children. And these are grown-ups, right? But he's very old, and he feels comfortable saying this. I'm writing these things to you, and this is likely the whole letter, not just the paragraph above. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Christian, you are to live a holy life. You are set apart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb to live a life that is glorifying and pleasing to God by doing the things that glorify and please God. Which involve, by the way, enjoying God, trusting God, obeying God, listening to God, reading the Bible and doing what it says. Enjoy God. But... What a beautiful truth here. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous one. The one who is set apart against all of history as the most righteous one who ever lived. That righteous one is our advocate with God as we speak. God himself, Jesus Christ, who goes to God when we sin. When we do as we ought not do. But why can he do that? We'll see, and I'll tell you. This is where I spoil the punchline because I want you to know before I go in. He can do that because as we sin, our sin is covered by his cross. And I said this last week and I'll say it again and I can't say it enough. If you have any confusion here, just even from the context of this verse, this is not a license to sin and do whatever we want to do and say, Jesus paid the price for my partying last night. Yes, he paid the price for your partying last night, but not so that you could party, but so that you could be forgiven and right with God because of your sin against him. Got it? I cannot be clear enough on that. This is not a license to sin. This is the forgiveness of our sins. This is our advocate, Jesus, with the Father. Verse 2. He is the, here's our big word, propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Okay. As a preacher... This is like a grenade sitting on my desk all week. When I pull out the pin, when I start doing my study, I'm like, this thing needs to be disarmed. So we have to take it apart, and we have to look at it. What is he saying? <laughs> Let's start two parts. Propitiation. Beautiful word. Uh, this word is only used twice in the whole New Testament. But there's a family of words that are all translated propitiation. We have to look at it. We have to understand it. We have to think about it. And why don't they just choose a different word? You might ask yourself, this is 2015. The authors of the ESV, the translators of the ESV are obviously very smart human beings who've done a very good job translating very old texts, starting with stuff written thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago and things that are written thousands and thousands of years ago, right? Why not find a different word? Because I don't know about you, uh, but I did not today when I was driving here say to my wife, you know, could you propitiate that coffee? For, you know, I mean, it's not a word we use, right? Because it's a very technical and specific word. That's why, right? You know, if you're an engineer or an architect, you may have words you use at work that you don't use at home because they're, I don't know, I'm not an architect, so I have to make up a word, a thingamajigger, right? Can you pass me the thingamajigger? Well, I don't know what that is. Architect stuff, right? Propitiation is kind of like that. It's kind of like the word thingamajigger, but it has a definition. We're talking about atonement here. We're talking about the beautiful reality that if you are a Christian through the cross of Jesus Christ, God sent his son 
in the likeness, likeness, not, the Bible says in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning as a human being, like a broken person such as yourself, but not broken and without any sin. Let me be clear. You have to walk through and asterisk this. And Did you hear what Andrew said? I didn't say that. This is what I'm saying. He came as a human being like you. A real human being like you. Um, a great, great theologian, uh, Dr. Bruce Ware, has been really wonderful in the last several years to point out that we, as Christians, had to put so much energy, and rightly, in the last century, defending the divinity of Christ against historical criticism, and people said, well, he was just a nice teacher and stuff. Nope. God. But that sometimes we spent so much time defending the reality that Jesus is God, and he is God, almost to the point, to the exclusion of the defense, who was fully human. Who walked on this earth like you and me. Who experienced life like you and me. And we'll see the importance of that in a second. Now, God entered into human history to save us from ourselves and to make us right with God. That you and I, if you are a Christian, right now are right with God Almighty. The righteous and holy judge of the universe. Right? I said we're going to look at a doctrine today that is basic, <laughs> offensive, and cherished. Because here's the deal. God is holy. And you and I are accountable to him. God is all right and no wrong. Correct? We saw this last week. All light, no dark. He is holy, righteous, and perfect. And you and I are accountable to him for our whole lives, which, at least on my record, is not all light and no dark. It is not all right and no wrong. Right? We stand accountable to a holy and righteous God who is not morally flabby, who is not uh, weak. He's always after the cleansing and getting rid of evil. He does not put things under the rug, and he will one day judge the living and the dead, Revelation chapter 20, and set everything straight, putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. He is not a God who is absent in these activities, and you and I need to be made right with this God. It's called atonement. Now, you and I, this is the difference between Christianity and any other religion. You and I are made right with that God, not by you trying harder, but by God saving you. This is why we can stand up and say these things. God is holy, we are sinful, and Jesus came to atone, and we are called to respond to his atonement. We are called to respond to his cross. We are called to respond to his death, burial, and resurrection. We are called to respond to his perfect, sinless, wonderful, beautiful, amazing life. We are called to respond to his ruling and reigning over all things as we speak, controlling everything and holding up the universe by the word of his power. He is good, right, all right, all the time. And if that was up to me, I have no hope. I do not understand the religions of the world that think they even have a chance to be right with a holy God when I look at who he is by the things they do. I need Jesus. I need propitiation. I need Jesus to make me right with God. I need Jesus to come and save me. Jesus is how God has saved me, and Jesus is our message. And again, it's always being clear. We are responding to that. I see and behold the wonder of the cross in all its beauty and glory, and then live my life in the wake of that, as we'll see. Right? I'm living in the wake of the shadow of the beautiful, wonderful, and glorious cross of Jesus Christ. 
By the way, he died on the cross to send me the spirit to empower me to live that life too, by the way. Amazing, right? Atonement is the reality that God came to make us right. Now, John is using images from the Old Testament. He's using sacrificial kind of images, and this is not unique to John, per se, in the New Testament. It's not unique to 1 John, uh, but he's using this word propitiation the same way the Septuagint, the uh, the uh, Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, the Greek Old Testament does, and he has in mind Jesus, like the Passover lamb, dying to cleanse us from all of our sin. So it's not me who makes me right with God, it's Jesus. Now it's important here because some of your Bibles may have the word expiation here, which just like propitiation is unfortunately as technical as propitiation, which we will get to, I promise, and you can put it in your mind the next time you get to 1 John, because only in 1 John, but when you're in Romans 3 or Hebrews 2, that same family of words. Uh, expiation and propitiation. Who cares and what's the difference, right? Well, some of your Bibles say the word expiation. Now, here's why it matters. Grammar lesson. Expiation is something where the object is a thing. And I mean that different than a person. Propitiation, I know, sometimes I do these grammar lessons and we're like, oh, it's because I just learned my grammar like in the last two years because I have kids and they're learning grammar. And you're like, oh, that counts. That's amazing. I wish someone had taught me that. Um, so expiation is something where the verb is applied to a thing. Propitiation is applied to a person. Always. Now expiation is applied to things like sin. Expiation is the pardoning of your sin, which you are, by the way. You are pardoned for all your sin. God doesn't say you didn't do it. He says you're forgiven for it, right? And at the same time, says that those things, that he remembers our sins and lawless deeds no more. He doesn't look at you in your sin. He looks at you in his son, Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. Right? He looks at you in his son, and you are free, and you are loved by God. Now, you are expiated in that sense. You are pardoned. You are cleansed. Those things are true. Your sin has been dealt with. But propitiation has a particular meaning, and it means the appeasement of wrath. Wrath is God's actionized justice as the right and holy judge of the universe. Jesus is the propitiation for that who drank the cup of God's wrath which I deserve for my sins so I don't have to. It is the turning away of the anger, the righteous anger. We live in a world where we say, oh, but I want a God who's not angry at people and stuff. And then I look at what's happening around the world and I see in myself even getting angry about stuff and injustices and I realize that God actually has a right and perfect view of all these things and is actively after evil in the world and going to crush it all under his foot. Now, the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is we're not saying, I'm awesome, be like me. I'm saying, I'm not awesome. Jesus is awesome and he saved me from myself and he's made a way for me to be propitiated which I don't usually use if I'm doing evangelism. Sure, propitiation might not be my number one word to use in this case, but I will explain this reality that Jesus Christ drank the cup of the wrath so I don't have to. God is just and right in that. So this is, it is expiated, but that's the wrong word there. It's propitiated. God's wrath is turned away from you because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the place where his love and his justice meet. It is the place where his love and his right the only one's rightly angry. Me. He looks at your sin and my sin. He looks at it. Doesn't just say, I'm, I'm going to pretend it's not there and sweep another. Looks at it. Takes the cross for it. Go with me to 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Like I said, this is Old Testament. You want to go Old Testament, you go to Hebrews. I thought Hebrews is the end of the New Testament. Well, yeah, but it's all Old Testament. That's why most people don't preach it. It's a lot of blood and sacrifice and things we don't want to talk about necessarily in 2015 because we don't have the right lens and framework. But Hebrews chapter 2, starting verse 17, says this. Therefore, he had to be made, like I said, like his brothers in every respect. He knows your every weakness. This is helpful for me as a preacher. I don't know your backstory. I don't know what you've been through. I mean, some of you, because we've talked. But just naturally speaking, I come in here on a Sunday, I don't know what last week looked like for you. And maybe there's stuff in your life that, and this is the beautiful thing about being in community, there are honestly issues you may have that someone in the church may actually be better able to help you with rather than this guy. We're like, oh, he's the professional. Yeah, but maybe I wasn't through that. Maybe we have someone in this church who's been through, God has taken through and redeemed through the very same thing you're going through and would actually be better suited to walk with you in that thing because they've been there themselves. And what Hebrews is telling us here is that Jesus has been there himself. We have a God who can relate to the darkest nooks and crannies and hardest struggles of your life. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So you can say, I know to you. So he's the priest, right? To make propitiation, which again, here's our same word, but really kind of has the connotation of the place where the sacrifice is offered to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, Go with me to Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. It says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Everyone is accountable to God. He has shown them how to live and what he is like even in just the Old Testament. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight, in his sight, since the law comes to the knowledge of sin. But now, now, this is the other side of the resurrection and the ascension. The kingdom of God is inaugurated, but yet forthcoming as he puts everything back the way it's supposed to be, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, the Torah and the Navim, the books of the Old Testament, bear witness to it. There's one who's coming who's going to put everything back, who's going to bring the kingdom of God, who's going to restore God's people, who's going to make it to where God can pour out his spirit on his people, who's going to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, uh, who, as Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says, that the Torah, the law of God is no longer going to be written uh, just on scrolls but on their hearts. All those things are coming through the Messiah that Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 110 and most of the other Psalms talk about. He's coming, say the Old Testament. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about. That's what the Old Testament is about. For all who believe, for there is no distinction, listen, 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every human being on the planet, you and me, and are justified by his grace. Sometimes we just remember Romans 3.23 and not Romans 3.24. Yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation like an Old Testament sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Someone had to pay the price for the sin. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It is to show his righteousness at the present time. That's now. So that he might be just. So that no one can look at God and say, but God, you didn't deal with that evil. You didn't deal with that Andrew Peck. You swept it under the rug. I did deal with that Andrew Peck. On the cross 2,000 years ago. And the justifier, by the way, he dealt with it, not me. He saved me, not me save me. To the one who has faith in Jesus. Now again, John is also going to use this word propitiate. And this is the where it's the exact same word. In John chapter 4, verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of for our sins, praise the Lord. Oh, there's my notes. There we go. Okay. God is not morally flabby. God actively opposes evil. But God has this gospel answer to my sin. His son came and died so that I might live. The gospel is not just that Jesus paid the price for my sins. It's that, yes, absolutely, Jesus paid the price for my sins, but Jesus has also given me that new heart, and he sent me his Holy Spirit. And now I get to live. I get to live in the gospel. I get to live knowing God. I get to live knowing Jesus. I get to live for the praise of his glorious name. I get to live all my days talking about the wonders and the beauties of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, that's propitiation. There's still a grenade on my desk that we still need to disarm. The bigger one's actually coming. I think it's right here. He is the propitiation for our sins, comma, and we're back in uh, 1 John chapter 2, in verse 2. Verse 2. How are we going to eat lunch? Goodness gracious. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So then... Does that mean that Jesus came and that I can do whatever I want because he came and deal, dealt with all the sins of the whole world and now I don't need to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Or if I do put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, do I need to do it in a passing way? Or because I said it once when I was 10, aren't I covered and I can do whatever I want and live like my own God and live like my own king and be disregarding of uh, other human beings and God and all his grace and justice? Nope. Well, first of all, I don't need any other text other than 1 John to say that's not what John means. Okay? But, let's take a little walk. So he's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So what is John after here? This is not what is called universalism or universal atonement. This is not the cross makes absolutely everybody right, period. 
in the sense that there's a sufficiency to the cross, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is not qualified. All who call upon the Lord, name of the Lord is not qualified. It's not qualified that all who call upon the name of the Lord up to X number of people will be saved because that's how much the cross covers. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And by the way, the word whole world here means whole world. This is basic Greek. John is very basic. He means what he means, but he doesn't mean what some people want him to mean when they kind of, you kind of do this thing where you have to take it and you got to check me too. I'll just say this too. So Hebrews 2.17, I read one verse out of a whole paragraph. Feel free to read around. Feel free to talk to me afterwards. You're like, you ripped that out of context and that's not what it says. Okay. Hey, talk to me about it. We'll go there. I'm not afraid to look at it. Okay. But be very weary when people kind of do that a lot. Or be leery of this. When you're reading the blog about universal atonement, it says, and Jesus did blah, 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 blah. And then there's the verse. Look at this verse. And it says, blah, 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 dot, 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 blah, blah, blah. Go and see what the dot, dot, dot says. Because the dot, dot, dot usually says what that person doesn't want it to say. And that's why it says dot, dot, dot. Okay? Little trick in checking the exegesis of someone else. Dot, dot, dot. Go check it. Uh, if they're using one Bible translation and you've never heard of it before, go look at it in your Bible and see what it says. Just helpful. Check it out. Just saying. Whole world. Okay, so it's not universalism. It's not universal atonement. It's also not pluralism. And uh, you might have experienced this, and if you live in Seattle, it's good for you to be equipped with this. You're talking with someone and say, well, have you read C.S. Lewis? You're a Christian. Christians love C.S. Lewis. Yes, we do really, really, really like Clyde. Here's the deal. Clive was awesome. Clive is not the Bible, and Clive is not always right. I know, I know Clive in such a way that me and Lewis, I can, I can speak of him this way. We're on a first-name basis. I feel the same way about John Calvin and Martin Luther, by the way. Marty and I, we're on, we're on good terms, right? I digress. Um, so here we are, uh, and... Clive's problem says, so the end of the final battle, um, there's this barn, the lion, it's kind of the you know, messianic type. Uh, in comes one critter after another, and then comes the one bad guy critter from the bad guy side. But he was really faithful to the bad, evil stuff. He followed all the rules of this other team, right? And it comes in, and he gets to get into the kingdom with everybody else. Why? Because he did such a good job following all the rules. And so people will say, well, don't you think that that might be like that? Maybe if, maybe if someone, maybe if a Muslim follows all the rules, this pluralism will take effect, and they get to be with God forever. What's the problem with that, church? No Jesus. And what's the problem with that? It's what's called works theology. The answer to that is that because you are a really good person, you can good person your way into heaven with Jesus Christ. No one could good person their way. God's holiness is mighty and untouchable. Right? There's one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. But sometimes people appeal to these kinds of things. And say, well, look, the whole world. Maybe it means something like that. It doesn't. That's not what it means at all. Why do I know that? 
Go with me. First, I'm going to make the argument. Yes, Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Then I'm going to tell you, but he doesn't mean it like that. Um, go with me to John chapter 4, verse 42. Own bad handwriting. 4 and 42. I was right. Deciphered. Uh, they said to the woman, so this ad for the Samaritan woman uh, has had an encounter with, with Jesus. She goes and tells the town, and they believe, which uh, is a whole other sermon on how God changes and reorders society in amazing and beautiful and wonderful ways, which I don't have time for right now. But in 42, when they actually encounter Christ, they say this. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed what? The Savior of the world. Okay. 1 John, back to 1 John, chapter 4, verse 14, says this. 17, 13, 14. And we have seen and testify, that apostolic witness again, that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, this is where you stop your quote if you're trying to prove universal salvation or universal atonement through Jesus Christ, and you put a, you put a dot, 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 and then a little quotation mark, because then what does it say? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and in him, and he in God. So we have come to know that we believe the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. What did it say? Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, I think God is love. You know where you got that idea? It's from 1 John chapter 4. That's where it came from. It's right there. Okay, so what do we do? How do we understand this then? Let's keep going. First Timothy chapter 4. Verse 9, the saying is trustworthy. Paul loves this little phrase in the pastoral epistles. Uh, just like the, my little children, when Paul says one of these, pay attention to what he's saying. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who what? Who is the Savior of all people. Period. Wait, no, not a period, comma. Right? This is where it goes, dot, dot, dot on the blog, dot, 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 and then the little whoop-whoop. Because then what does it say? Especially of those who believe. What does that mean? One Savior for the world. One Savior, his name is Jesus Christ. One way, one truth, one life. Only applied especially to those who believe. Period. How do I know that? Philippians chapter 2. Number one verse, the people who want to try and say it's for absolutely everybody, Period. Go to Philippians 2. I don't think it's on your screen, but I'm in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says this. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm in Philippians 2 and 5. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the 
uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they say, see, everyone's going to bow. Well, if you go with me to Isaiah 45, where that's quoted from, it says this. I'm in Isaiah 45, verse 22. If you don't know Jesus, I need you to hear number 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. As we talk about these heavy topics, like sin and wrath, Know that the God of the universe is saying to all people, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, regardless of, regardless of where you come from, what you look like, who you are, ethnic background, anything, period, one Savior of the world, and he's saying, come to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. This is the verse. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of the 1800s, heard a guy he didn't even remember his name of preach on when he accidentally went into a chapel once and became a Christian. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. Because God doesn't need to swear by anything but himself. That's probably an allusion to the Abrahamic covenant. But that also might be a sermon for a different day. For my mouth has gone out into righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, here's our verse, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. People who confess Christ will bow in adoration and praise. And those who rejected him will bow in terror as they are being judged by the God of the universe. Um, oh, one more. Second Peter, so you can flip over if you're in First John. It should be the other page over. What's interesting about all these verses is these are verses that kind of can be problem verses when they sit by themselves, but when you get them in the room to have a party, they all start making a lot more sense. This is called biblical theology. Biblical theology is where you take your Bible and you have a party and you invite to the party these different verses that you might have trouble understanding, what do they mean? And instead of interpreting two things, instead of interpreting harder to understand verses by easier, or pardon me, instead of by interpreting easier to understand verses by harder verses, or trying to, uh, to isolate a hard to understand verse and try and understand it by itself, you get them on in and you have a party. It's Christian hospitality. You get them in the room and you have a party because if you've ever read 2 Peter chapter 2 slowly, this may have weirded you out. Uh, we will start in verse, we'll just start, oh, pardon me, we'll start in 21 of chapter 1. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Note that. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Old Testament. 
But false prophets arose among the people. Those are always people who are leading God's people astray. Just as there will be false teachers among you, be very, very careful when someone says, I know what the Bible says, but I think this is a movement of the Spirit. I know what the Bible says, but really you've got to get with the times. Yeah, but God didn't mean that. God, my God's not like that God. My God's this God. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies? Even denying the master who bought them. So these aren't Christians. What does it mean that he bought them if they're not Christians? Who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and their greed will exploit, uh, exploit you in false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God will judge that evil too. God has rights over all of his creation as creator. He is God. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God himself, who entered into human history, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who fulfills Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament Bible by the New Testament Bible. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my feet until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. He's Messiah. What does it mean that he's going to judge them as the one who bought them? It means, first and foremost, that he can judge everyone and everything is creator of everything. But he has the Psalm 1, Psalm 2, go home and read them tonight, verses that say that he's also going to rule every, over everything as Messiah. So yes, Jesus has, listen, he has rights over everything as God, and doubly so has rights over everything as Mashiach, as the Christ. He has rights over everything as God is the king of everything and also the one who fulfilled all the Old Testament stuff as the king of everything. He has double rights over absolutely everything as Messiah. Now that's the God who came and propitiated us. That Messiah is the one who turned away that right. That one is the one who came to save us and forgive us. That one is the one who is our advocate. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Now this is how you respond. If we keep his commandments. How do you know someone is a Christian? They believe Jesus and they do what he says. This doesn't mean perfectly and without sin. This doesn't mean you never fall short and have to say you're sorry. This means you don't disregard what God said. You trust and believe Jesus and do what he said. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Because we're responding to the beauty of this one. This Messiah who died to give us life and to save us. We trust him in what life actually is supposed to look like. But whoever keeps his word. Oh, pardon me. Uh, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. That is strong. John's saying that if you say that you know Jesus and you don't do what he says, you don't know who he is. Now, I don't think this means our daily struggle as people being sanctified. I think this means when you say, eh, that's old, eh, that's not my God, 
I don't, I mean, I don't do it. I mean, that guy's a, that guy's a, you know, he's kind of like a real Christian. I'm just kind of, you know, I'm just kind of hanging out Christian. Like, you know, he's the serious guy, but we're both, you know, it's all cool, whatever. I'll just do what I want to do. No, there's no varsity, junior varsity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's people being sanctified, maturing, changing, growing. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected or completed or filled up. As you obey God, you're changed and sanctified and made more like his son, Jesus Christ. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment. So we're dealing with Gnostics. They love new stuff. He's appealing. They love new stuff and they love old stuff. And sometimes they appeal to ancient stuff and sometimes they appeal to new stuff. And John's saying, no, no. I've got the real deal ancient stuff because it comes from God who was from the beginning, as it said in verse 1. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. Uh, he is likely referring to Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, our God is one. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because what does Jesus say? What is fulfilling the law? Loving God, loving people. That's it. That's how the law is fulfilled. At the same time, it is a new commandment. Why? Because it's different. The Old Testament's gone. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was placed over the Abrahamic Covenant, and Jesus came and undid that thing, and now we have the New Covenant in Christ Jesus, and what is not restated in the New Testament is abrogated. What has not been restated in the New Testament has passed away. Why do we not keep kosher? Well, God said don't do it. Great conversation with Pete. Peter. Peter. Again, me and Peter on pretty good terms, too. <laughs> Peter, eat good food. No, God, I've never eaten things that are unclean. Peter, just so you know, I'm God. I get to tell you what to do, and I'm telling you to eat some bacon. And then Peter argues with him. You re, you, this is a remix, but you read it and act like, why is Peter arguing with God about bacon? I do not understand why he's arguing with God about bacon, but there he is, arguing with God about bacon. Abrogated means it's gone. If it's not restated in the New Testament, it's gone. You'll see that all the Ten Commandments are restated uh, in the New Testament. Uh, so much of what we know to be true is restated by Jesus or the apostles in the New Testament. But it is a new commandment. It looks new and old. It's old and new. It's new and old. Uh, it's... Uh, it's the, uh, it's the Shema, it's the love the Lord God with all your heart, it's, it's the reality that uh, we're to love God, love others, and that yet some things have passed away because we're, not, we're no longer marked by these externals, we're marked by new and changed hearts in the blood of Jesus Christ. Different markers for his people. Uh, that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You and I live in a time and a place where God is after evil and as dark as sometimes it can feel here, God is putting all things back the way they're supposed to be. And just like you didn't change your name on your driver's license when you got saved, when you became a Christian, you became a new person. You need to know that. Whatever happened before you met Jesus was done by someone other than you. Again, you don't change your license. That doesn't hold up in a court of law. But in the cosmic reality of Jesus Christ, it's true. You are not that person you were. 
And yet you are the same person. It's an odd phenomenon. You didn't change the flavors of pizza you like. Right? You still like the Hawaiian. Great. New person still likes Hawaiian. Don't get a new license. New person. New creation. That's the way our world's going to be. It's going to be completely and radically changed. Every eye shall be wiped of their tears. Death and sin shall be no more. Uh, the throne of God will sit in the center of the city of God and the river of life will throw, flow through that throne. And this is a beautiful picture of God's rule and reign being the fountainhead of life for all those who have been saved and live with God in the new heaven and new earth forever. We could go on, but it's lunchtime. It will be lunchtime if I keep going. But the light's already shining kingdom's inaugurated. Just like your life in Christ is inaugurated. You will live in a time and a place with Jesus forever because of his cross with no sin. You will live in a time and a place where you never say yes to the things you want to say no to. You will live in a time and a place physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually restored before your maker because of his cross and his grace and his mercy. The lion will lay down with the lamb. We keep going. It's amazing. That reality, the future and, and what's happening in the future and where we are at today, as uh, Andreas Kostenberg said, that Kostenberg, it, it's collapsed. We, we get to taste part of that kingdom reality now, and the fullness comes not yet. It's inaugurated. It's yours. You will see, be seated with God at the marriage supper of the Lamb, regardless of the storms that come in your life. You're sealed. You belong to Jesus Christ. That means you've got the ticket to the greatest party in the cosmos. The light is already shining. Whoever sees he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. You're still living like the world in the ways that it used to be, where, where it's dog-eat-dog dog and survival of the fittest and people hurting people. You, you're not living in the now. You're not living in the reality that's been purchased for you. And he's saying that these two don't go together. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light and is in him. Greatest commandment, love God. Second commandment, love others, right? There is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. It walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That is the spiritual reality for the lost. We're walking in the light because he is in the light. We walk and live like Jesus lived. Jesus is the means and the mode of our salvation. He is how we lived and we're how, how we live now and how we are to live. He is who saved us and how we live. When we don't believe this, we deviate from one or the other. We either deviate from the truth of the gospel or, or we deviate from the life and the pattern that he set for us, walking in the light. So we do false religion and we do things so that God will love us. And, well, you know, God, I did wake up so early and read my Bible. Don't you know how much I've done for you, God? What have you done for me lately? We get works theology on God. Or we live in a different mode. We don't walk in light as he is in the light. We don't live in the means, the gospel. We don't live in the, the model, his holiness, and live in rebellion. When we when look at Jesus, our advocate, the, the mode and, and the means and the model of our salvation, 
We see what we've been saved from and how we've been saved and what we've been saved to. And how much all of that, everything about our life in Jesus is a gift. These are intended to be things that stoke us for a passion and a love for him and for others. If you don't know him, this is it. This is the Savior of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He takes you as you are. He changes you. He cleanses you. It's not dress nice and come to church and start acting like a Christian. It's be saved by God and respond to his grace and mercy. Respond to who Jesus is. Repent and believe. If you're not walking in the light, if you're a Christian, this is resonating. This is not, I'm not walking in the gospel. I'm trying to earn my salvation. I'm doing whatever I want to do. Walk in the light. Turn to Jesus. Be saved. Be saved from these things that are stirring you away from him. As a church, we get to do an amazing thing. We get to walk in the love of God, loving God, and loving others. That's what we get to do for eternity. Uh, in a moment, we're going to take communion. Um, on the far plate, we have gluten-free. On the middle, we have regular bread. Then we have wine and juice and a basket for the offering. When we do this, we remember Jesus' body broken and blood shed, the just and the justifier, who is perfect in his holiness and in his righteousness, but he's also perfect in the way that he forgave us for our sins. So he's just and the justifier. He swept nothing in your life under the rug. Instead, he absorbed it all. And so we don't take this uh, in a way where, where, where we're dour or, or sad. We take this as a celebration of what he has done for us on his cross to bring us life. And so just as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, we consider our sin and we turn from our sin and we, we talk to God about it and we repent. But when we come up and we take, we take this and celebrate, when we stand up to sing, we celebrate. The wrath has been completely turned away from us. God is perfectly just and we are perfectly loved and we are perfectly forgiven. We are the people of God because of Jesus and what he's done. Let's pray. King Jesus, your grace is amazing. Your gospel is amazing. Your word is amazing. Your truth is amazing. Jesus, we need you to move in our lives, to help us not to wander, to see you for who you are, to drink deeply that reality, and, and to appreciate everything you've done for your glory and for our joy. We're clean, we're saved. We're forgiven. We're loved. Empower us to walk in that reality, responding to your cross and to your resurrection. Pray these things for your glory, for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.